A reading from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, what a profound passage of scripture. And I thank uh, Bridget for reading that, and I um, just wanted us to feast on it in a reading, and without me reading it, um, because sometimes then we jump in the what does this mean and what does this mean, and we can lose the beauty of 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most profound chapters, not just in 1 Corinthians, but in all of the scriptures, a meditation on love, directed to a local church, not just up in the sky, not primarily for a wedding service, though you can have it at your wedding service, (laughs) but primarily written to a group of people trying to love, trying to love better, trying to love deeper, trying to love like Jesus has loved them. And good news, you and I are also trying to love like that. And it's hard and it's difficult. And the book of 1 Corinthians is the book that we've been in all fall. And we're winding our way to the great climax in 1 Corinthians 15. 
And we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And just to remind you, in case you forgot or you're new or you're visiting here, the book of 1 Corinthians is a book that the apostle Paul wrote, an early church planter and church leader to a group of Christians trying to follow Jesus in a city that didn't necessarily love Jesus. And they're trying to become more like Jesus. And so Paul's writing to them. And in the beginning, Paul says, I I want you men and women to become who you are. Right? God has saved you. God has reconciled you. But you're not always acting like that. And so I want your behavior to match up with who you are in Christ. And the book of 1 Corinthians just keeps going at that. Because the Corinthians are not acting like who they have been made in Jesus Christ. And all of us do not always act like we should, like what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so we want to connect our behavior with our identity. And that's the story of the book of 1 Corinthians. Corinthians, and it's been a great joy for us to walk through this book. Well, my name's R.G. I'm one of the pastors here at Door Creek Church, and it's always good to be with you. Merry Christmas to all of you, and a special Merry Christmas to those watching in the chapel, those watching up up north. Merry Christmas to you as well. It's great to be with you um, this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is a a profound passage on love. And I have three points for the message. Number one, the necessity of love. Secondly, the nature of love. And thirdly, the eternality of love. The necessity of love, the nature of love, and the eternality of love. 1 Corinthians 13 is sandwiched in between 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which Mark talked about last week, and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which we'll talk about next weekend. And and last week, if you were here or were not here, was a profound passage on spiritual gifts and on the body and how we should use our gifts to benefit and to bless the body. And so it's not an accident, nothing in scripture is accidental, that coming after how should we use the spiritual gifts, Paul drops 1 Corinthians 13. Because then in chapter 14, he's going to basically describe a worship service, a gathering of the church. And so he's looking at chapter 12 and saying, you have all of these gifts. God has given you all of these gifts. And just quickly, in chapter 12, uh, right before, uh, in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 12, Paul writes this. He says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Verse seven, now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good so that the gifts of God, the gifts of the spirit are used for the good of all people. They're not used so that you can say, look how many gifts I have. I have four, you have three. God loves me more right? No, whether you have one gift or whether God's given you every single gift, all of us together have been gifted by the Holy Spirit, and the purpose of those gifts are for the good of the church and the good of the world. That is what the gifts are about. And so Paul's saying the way in which you're going to use these gifts is the way of love. 
He runs through tongues. He runs through prophecy in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13. And faith and giving possessions to the poor. Paul runs through many great deeds, many good things. And he says, but if you're not motivated by love to prophesy, if you're not motivated by love to gain knowledge, if you're not motivated by love to give to the poor, then you're doing all of these things for your own benefit, for your own sake. You're not doing it in love to bless others, to help others for their sake. You're really doing doing it for your sake. And it's amazing. It is amazing how we can take the good gifts of God and then use them for our own benefit, for our own glory and not his glory. This is actually kind of scary, especially the first three verses for church people, for religious people. Because it says your spiritual resume can have a lot of achievements. But if it is not filled with love, you might as well just tear it up because it's worthless. Memorizing the Bible, church attendance, getting all the stars you want in Awana, do not save you. Only what is done in love because you've received love matters. Otherwise, this church, we're just a gong and we fade out. And that's the scary part here is that sometimes we can think God's blessing a church or God's blessing someone because they're doing so many things in the name of God and yet they couldn't be further from the purposes of God. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven on the screen. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, evildoers. Now, there are few scarier verses for anyone, but much less church religious people than these verses, right? They're saying, Lord, we did these things even in your name. Demons were being cast out. prophesying in your name. And Jesus says, on that day, I will say, I never knew you. Now, why would he say that? Because none of that was done for love for God. It was all done for love for themselves, that they could make a name for themselves. They could build their own Babel to the sky. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Achievements for God are far less important in the kingdom of God than abiding in God. Because it's much easier, isn't it much easier to check off, what have I done for God this week? Okay, I did this, I did this, I did this, check. And it's much more difficult. It can be much more elusive than just to abide in his presence. And what abiding means is simply receiving the love of God in Jesus Christ. Remaining close to him. And as you're reading the scriptures, doing it out of love for God, as you're praying to God, doing it because you know that God is your father and he hears you. And so you're delighted to walk with him and you're walking closely with him. And you know that maybe God will bless you with a wonderful week of doing a lot of things for him. But even if the week is filled with a lot of pain or a lot of amazing things, it doesn't matter because you're abiding, you're steadfast, you're walking with Jesus day in and day out. And that's the mark of someone who has love in their heart. They're abiding. They're steadfast. The achievements will always come if we're abiding. God will always use us if we're abiding. Mother Teresa, she wrote this. She said, 
I am not sure exactly what heaven will be like. But I know that when we die and it comes time for God to judge us, he will not ask, how many good things have you done in your life? Rather, he will ask, how much love did you put in what you did? Love is not an option. Love is not optional. Love is not an add-on. Love is not one of the gifts of the Spirit. Love is the way we use all of the gifts of the Spirit. We cannot use the gifts of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit. And the first fruit of the Spirit is love. Yet so often we want to use all the gifts without any of the fruit. I know I I do. (laughs) Right? I do. And yet how many of us, we don't have to raise our hands because things could get awkward. (laughs) Chapel service, North Campus. How many of us who've been around church a long time have met at church some of the most unloving people, unkind people ever. Okay, you raise your hands, okay, it's okay. You can just like this, it still counts, yep. Right, all, all of us have, isn't it, isn't it just seems so funny and so crazy that some of the most unloving people you could ever meet are part of the church. Some of the angriest people you could ever meet are part of the church, right? They, they, they live to judge, they live to say that's not right or, or that's not right and the spirit of love is in them and yet they could be doing these amazing things for God but they don't have a love for God or a deep love for other people. It always breaks my heart when I hear stories from people who left the faith or left the church because of someone they met in church or something that happened in church where they were guilted or or shamed or made to feel this way. And I think that's not the way church should be. It's It's a bunch of messy, broken people, yes. That's why all of us are okay here. But it shouldn't be a place where then we're judging people because we're all messy and we're all broken and no one is higher than anyone else. There's no ladder in the kingdom of God, right? The ladder has been destroyed, <laughs> though we keep trying to climb it. God's like, you can't. There's no, there's no, it's everyone is on this level playing field. And so we must love each other because all of us are in a hard place. Martin Luther King, he said, um, he said, I've, I've decided that um, I'm going to choose love over hate because hate is too great a burden to bear. Love is necessary. Without it, we're just a gong. We're just a group of people gathering. Paul's prayer for the Corinthians is, as they're using all of these gifts, it would be seasoned with love. So the world in Corinth, so that here in Madison, people would say, here, this church, yeah, we may disagree with them on all kinds of things, but we can't disagree that they love people. They love people. The necessity of love, verses one through three. Secondly, the nature of love. The nature of love, verses four through seven. I'll just read these again because these are probably the most famous section. Whether you've been in church or you've not been in church, uh, you've probably heard these verses. Love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. That, that is the nature of biblical love, is verses four through seven. If you wanna say, what does the Bible say about love? What is love in the Bible? Then look at verses four through seven. That, there it is right there. And yet, what, what I wanna do just quickly is look at kind of the, the nature of modern Western cultural love and how we define love now. 
which I, I think hopefully we're aware is very different from how the Bible defines love. So that we use the word love for all kinds of things, right? We say, maybe you don't say this, but I say, uh, I love queso, right? And if you're alive, you should say that as well, right? You lo- yeah, that's right. I see some thumbs up. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's so good. It'll be in the kingdom of heaven. I know. I know it'll be there, right? It will. We'll see. Yeah, <laughs> silence. Um, Right, we say, I love, um, I love the Packers, <laughs> right? We lo- love, love the Packers, love it when they win, hate it when they lose, right? We, um, we say, I love cats. No, like, no one really says that. No one actually, there's no one. No, no, no. <laughs> okay, we, I love cats. I love dogs more, right? We love dogs. We love cats. We, we, I love my job. Right, we're using the same word, and then we say the same thing about our children or our spouse or our, or our friend or our parents. I love my parents. And then we say, I love God. And if someone's visiting from another planet and they're just hearing us talk, they're thinking, so is everything equal, right? Do you love everything equally? You love your socks and you love God and you use the exact same word? Well, I, no, I don't. I, well, why would you use the exact same word? And what we mean in our culture When we say that we love something or someone, we mean this person or this thing brings me pleasure. And that's why I love it. Because it makes me happy. Because it brings me joy. It makes me feel like a better person. It's consumeristic. Right? I love you because of what you do for me. I love, right, something like queso because it makes me feel good. Right? I love the Packers when they win. Right, but when they lose, things are just being destroyed, right? Because it's so crazy, but your heart's wrapped up in this thing that's greater than you. And you ride the wave of it. But it can never satisfy you. Right? When we think about love, this applies to all kinds of things. But if we think of romantic love, especially in our culture, this is so huge. Tara Parker Pope is a writer for the New York Times. And she wrote an article a couple years ago that I keep coming back to. Um, it was called The Happy Marriage is a Me Marriage. The Happy Marriage is a Me Marriage. She writes this. She says, The notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Seems like a fair question. <laughs> Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and Intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners who make their lives more interesting. If you're seeking self-growth and obtain it from your partner, then that puts your partner in a pretty important position. And being able to help your partner, self-expansion would be pretty pleasing to yourself. Now, on the surface, right, some of that seems like, well, yeah, sure, Right? I, I want to be with someone who helps me be a better person. I want to be someone that expands the view of myself. I want to be with someone that actually like, loves me and, and, and helps me do this, this, or this. And a lot of people, and I can tell you from doing a lot of premarital counseling and, and from just being in the generation that I'm in, that's how many people view the, uh, the deepest commitment that you can make. And the problem with that is that it's exhausting. Because what if the person can no longer expand yourself? Right? What if they can no longer fulfill you? What if they're no longer helping you become a better you, whatever that means? <laughs> right? What if all the things that they found interesting about you, they no longer find interesting about you? And so they bolt. 
and the broken terrain of marriage and even just friendships and relationships in this country of a rising generation testify that we love so conditionally. And when someone maybe stops loving us or they don't love us the way that we should love, we bolt, we abandon. Or when we see someone at their worst, we say, no, I wanted someone else, actually. I wanted someone more put together. Well, thankfully, the Bible, as always, has such a, uh, a much better word for us than just what we say with love. The Greek word in 1 Corinthians 13 and scattered throughout the New Testament is the Greek word agape, which you may have heard before. And it's a Greek word which doesn't mean I love you when I feel like it, <laughs> or I love you because of what you do for me. It's a Greek word that means the, the truest sense of love. It, it defines who God is. It's, it's sacrificial. It's selfless. It's others directed for their good. It's deep affection for someone. It's agape love. It's the love of Jesus. It's the way of true biblical love. And it's a love that the people in Corinth need it. And it's a love that you and I need. It's agape love. And verses four through seven are just going to lay out what agape love is. Love is patient. In the Greek, it means long-suffering, enduring, long-lasting, not stopping. Love is patient, yet many of us are impatient, right? How many of us are impatient people, right? Our culture is producing impatient people, not patient people, right? I, I, am, I am guilty, so I'm not saying you are all impatient. And let, show, let me tell you how to be patient, no. Um, I will order books on Amazon. I have Prime, so I get two-day shipping, right? And I remember a couple of times I've ordered a book on like a Saturday or Friday, and they don't ship on like Saturday or Sunday. And so I, it doesn't ship till Monday, and so I don't get the book till Wednesday. Where if I wait till like Monday at like 11.59 a.m., I can still get it Monday, Right? <laughs> And so I've ordered on Saturday before and been like, okay, it's coming Monday. Then I'm like, no, it's not. No, it's not. Now I have to wait four days, right? Give me a drone. Get it here in an hour. Like that is what I, that is what I want, right? And who knew, we have drones now that are dropping things off. I had a friend of ours that they put on Instagram, which is a social media site for some of you, and they show that it was in an hour they got a book they just ordered. And they were showing it up. And I was like, that's what I want. Why does it take two days? And we import the cultural narrative because the culture's always discipling us of impatience into our most sacred relationships, and we become impatient with them. And fewer people are married longer, and fewer people have friends more than a few years because we move so much. And this person's not like me, so... Mm. But Paul says love is patient. Love is long-suffering. Love is non-stopping. It's not impatient. And how good that God is not impatient. How good. I'll just tell you, it is good. <laughs> how good that God is patient. How good that love is patient. That love doesn't say you've got a week. You've got a week. No, it's he's so patient with us. Because he knows. <laughs> he knows us. He knows you. Well, love is not only patient, love is kind. And this, this is one of my favorite parts of scripture, and I think this describes God himself and the ministry of Jesus so well. If, you could, if I could pick maybe one word to describe the ministry of Jesus, it would be the word kind. 
how kind he was to everyone. Kind. Kind in the Greek, it means merciful and generous, and my favorite, gentle. How many of us have been loved? I'm putting it in quotes for those of you on the podcast. How many of us have been loved by someone very not gently? And they're saying, I'm, I'm telling you this because I love you. And you're like, oh, and I'm feeling loved, <laughs> right? I'm feeling really loved, right? You can tell hard truths to someone in a very arrogant, angry way, and they will never hear it. Or you can tell the same hard truth to someone in a kind and gentle way. And maybe they'll still disagree. You know what? Maybe they still won't hear it. But you've got a much better chance of them feeling like you love them if you're gentle with them. Sometimes we have to say hard things to our friends, and that's loving them. Love is not a synonym for acceptance. It doesn't mean we just accept choices of everyone. No, that wouldn't be loving. That would be just not loving at all. But the way in which we speak truth to each other, as Paul will say at the end here, is to be kind. Love does not envy. It's not jealous. In the Greek, it means to be painfully desirous of someone else's advantage. We're not envious because when we become envious, we quit becoming grateful for all that God has given to us. And when we begin to compare ourselves to other people on our block, in our job, in our stage of life, we begin to lose a lot of joy. Right, the great quote by Chesterton, maybe, forget, uh, that um, comparison right, is the enemy of joy. And when we begin to envy others, we begin to say to the God of the universe, your gifts and your love for me is not sufficient. I want what they have. Love is not proud and it's not puffed up with air. We don't want to be like balloons. <laughs> right? We don't want to be just puffed up and then explode on everyone. No, love is not puffed up. It doesn't have a sense of its own self-importance. Love does not dishonor others. It doesn't, bring, it doesn't bring disgrace or shame to other people, right? Love does not look at someone and ever bring them shame or ever, right, have them feel condemnation, right? The opposite of that would just be that love honors all people. Even when we disagree with someone's lifestyle, especially if it's someone on the margins of society, we're mad, what happened to you? How did you get there? We should never, as people of the cross, as people of Jesus, we should never dishonor people and shame them or guilt them because we're not any better than them. And so a loving community, a loving church honors everyone and doesn't dishonor anyone. Love is not self-seeking. And that's a verse that can just go back at our culture and say, love is not about the journey of finding yourself, right? Love is about the journey of being found in Jesus Christ and finding yourself wrapped up in who he is. Love is not self-seeking, it's self-giving. It's giving towards other people. Love is not easily angered. I love the word there, easily. <laughs> It doesn't mean you can't ever get righteously angry. When we see injustice, when we see oppression, we should get angry. God gets angry at these things. We should be filled with a righteous fury and not just say, well, we're just going to tolerate it. No, we can't tolerate these things. Yet what Paul is, is not specifically talking about that. He's talking about things which shouldn't actually make you angry, but people that seem to walk around angry, right? They walk around, you know, wound up. They're very easily angered at all kinds of, of issues, even when someone hurts them, even in a small way, they just blow up at them because they're so easily angered because there's not this love in their heart. It doesn't mean that you can't be angry or can't be frustrated, but he says easily. Right? Do you have a long fuse? 
do you see the mistakes of others as reasons to yell at them or to disparage them or to remind them of all the ways they failed in the past? Right, that's not loving. It's not loving. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps no record of wrongs. <laughs> but I do. Right, I, I like, I, I don't write these lists down, but I keep them in my mind like a mental Rolodex. Right, to my wife, um, to my friends. I keep a record of wrongs. It's just easy. It just seems natural, right? You wronged me, you did this, and so we keep records of it. But real love, true love, does not keep records. There's no calculations for this. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. That's why love always speaks the truth, always gives off the truth. Does not delight in evil or injustice or unrighteousness. Love is always speaking the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Agape love is all about giving and never about getting because all that we need, we've been given by God. He's given us all the love that we need so then we can love outwardly. Right, what if we, and I did this this week, which is very humbling, what if um, in 1 Corinthians 13, you may have done this before, every time we saw the word love, we put your name in there. We put my name in there. RD is patient. RD is kind. We just stop there, right? <laughs> There's no need to read the rest. RD does not envy. RD does not boast. RD is not proud, right? And you keep going. And I, I was reading it this week, and I thought, oh, but I am. And I do, or I don't. I'm unable to love like I should. And so this is such an ideal, right? It seems almost impossible. It's like, who can love like this? How, how can there be a community of people that actually love like this? The people I love the most in my life, I don't always love like this, right? And the only way, the only way that you and I can um, love like this is if we've been loved like this by someone who's seen us at our very worst and chosen to love us anyway. Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love for you, for me in this way. When you were at your worst, Christ died for you. That verse should give us such hope. It's not when you cleaned up your life, God said, now you're ready. When you got your act together, when you finally brought yourself to church, finally, right? Now I died for you. No, it says at your worst, when you were unlovable, when you were an enemy of God, at that moment, the love of God from all eternity broke through your heart at that moment so that you and I can always know because he's loved us at our worst, he will always love us. He will always love us. And so we don't have to look to God and say, what do I have to do now for you to love me? We can't lose his love because we didn't gain his love on our own. He gave it to us. Because Jesus is patient. And Jesus is kind. And Jesus is not envy. And Jesus does not boast. He's not proud. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. In fact, all of the record of our wrongs were put on his record. He took all of them. He took all of the evil 
on himself. So now you and I have no record of wrongs in our account because he loves us. Now that's agape love. Does that sound like what the world needs? You know how the early church grew? All the buildings they had. (laughs) False. (laughs) Right, all of the amazing worship bands they had. False, (laughs) right? All of the political clout they had. False, (laughs) right? They didn't have any of the things that we have. The early church in the first, second, third, and fourth centuries grew because they loved each other so deeply that other people looked out from the outside. You can read quotes about this. Other people, uh, pagans, looked out from the outside in and said, how do you love each other like that? And why are you loving us like that? And over and over again, maybe they would just go back to 1 Corinthians 13 because Jesus loved us like this. Rodney Stark, in his great history of Christianity, writes this, and he's really talking about the first few centuries of the church. He says, to cities filled with homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social reconciliation and acceptance. To cities where hate and division were a normal part of the fabric of society, Christianity offered love and healing. It was this agape love of God driven into the hearts of people going out into the heart of their city and the world that changed the world because the world itself never, ever, ever had seen people love each other like this and love strangers like this. Never seen it. Couldn't, couldn't understand it. Man, that we would be a church like that. That we would be a people like that not here to judge or be angry at the world, but here to love the world, to life in Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. This all gets lived out in the church, not in just your own personal life only, but in the church. Oh, that we would love each other, and by the power of the Spirit, Him living inside of us, we really can. And know that even when we don't, He still loves us. And he still calls us his beautiful bride, spotless, right? Man, what good news. Finally, my last point, the necessity of love. It's necessary because without it, we're just gongs. (laughs) The nature of love, it's sacrificial, it's selfless. It's Jesus-shaped. And finally, the eternality of love. It's been here forever, it'll go on forever. I love the beginning of this section here. Love never fails. In the Greek, the word is literally falls, which means love is never defeated. Isn't that great? You can't defeat love. It's, it's undefeatable. You can't actually defeat it. See, I, I always love thinking that, you know, the entire cosmos, all of the universe, however much there is, and it's always expanding, it's always growing, that the entire cosmos was created by love. That before anything was made, there was God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, existing in a Trinitarian relationship together, filled with love for each other. 
And so get this, at the foundation of all that we see, of all that we cannot even see in the ocean, in the galaxy, on earth, the foundation of all creation is love. The cosmos was created by love, not by just a random being who just said, let's just start something but by one who is love itself. I was talking with an atheist friend of mine and who's really smart in physics, which I am not, and I'm trying to learn from, um, from him, and he just said, RD, it's a nice, wonderful thought that, the, I was trying to explain this to him. He's like, oh, what a, that's a nice, wonderful thought, but that's just right crazy. That's, there's some person up somewhere that just kind of made all of this, you know, let's look at the science. That, that cannot be. The world, the, the universe was created in this way or, or in that way, but there's not some being out there that just created all of this. And I said, well, obviously I don't think that is true, but I said to him, I was like, don't you want this to be true, right? Don't you want at the center of everything to be love and not just chance and not just survival of the fittest? And I remember he said, well, you know, think I could tell he wanted to say no, <laughs> right? And I remember he just said, well, it'd be nice if it was true, but it's not. And I just thought, but you want it to be true. You want it to be true, and it is true. 1 John 4, 16, God is love. The cosmos was created by love. And if the entire creation was created by love, you were created by love and you were created to love an eternal being, God himself. And unless we love him supremely, all other loves will fail us and exhaust us. Tim Keller writes, he says, We believe, Christians, we believe the world was made by a God who is a community of persons who have loved each other for all eternity. You were made for mutually self-giving, other-directed love. Self-centeredness destroys the fabric of what God has made. Self-centeredness destroys the fabric of God's world. So self-giving in love restores the fabric of God's world, begins to knit God's world back together and through the church as we love each other because we know where the world is headed to a new creation that is filled with the presence of God. It is love, right? Paul says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Love never fails. Love never runs out, right? The candle on love is always burning. And so if that is our destiny, if that is where we're headed, then how we love and live now actually matters. N.T. Wright says, he says that love is not our duty, it is our destiny. You and I were made for an eternal God of love. We were made for an eternal God of love. And one day, you and I will see him face to face. One day, we will see him clearly. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying everything else is going to cease in verses 8 through 11. He says all the other great gifts that God's given you, they're going to end. They're going to cease. They have, uh, right, it's going to be over soon. But there's one thing that will remain, and it's love. It's love. Love never fails. It never, ever fails. I love verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. I think of my, um, my girls. I brought a photo. <laughs> and there'll be two January 1st. Can you believe it? You all were right. Time flies. And I think now at the age of two, they're starting to kind of reason. If by reason for like a second now, they actually stop and like think and then run away and disobey, right? (laughs) 
Um, and yet I can see now, even at the age of two, uh, as my wife and I are talking with them about don't touch the fire, right? And we're like, do not, like, if you talk louder or slower, they're going to understand more, right? Maybe they do. I don't, that could actually be true. It feels like it's right. We're just going to keep doing it. And we're talking to them, and they're like, don't touch the fire. And you can see there's like a half second where they're like, and then it's kind of like either they just run away, you know, it's like, okay, fine, I just say no, so whatever. You know, but when we begin to like trying to reason with them, which sometimes, you know, I try and do like, because fire is hot, it'll hurt you, it's made of these chemicals, you know, they're just like, it's, it's over. I'm like, oh, why am I trying to reason? I, they don't know, right? But I, I could see them, they know a little bit, like they kind of understand, but they have no context for what I'm saying. They have no idea. If I explain it to you, you'd be like, well, of course that makes sense but they can't wrap their minds around what I'm saying, but they, they have like a little glimpse of it. And Paul is saying all of us are like two-year-olds when it comes to who God is. And how often does he try to explain things to us, and yet he's so patient with us, and yet one day we will put away childish things and we will all be adults, and then we will know. It'll all make sense. It'll all make sense. Second example there, which I also... I also love, he says, for now, verse 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. And what he's saying here, if you think of a mirror like we have, it probably doesn't make sense because we see so clearly. But in the first century, imagine like a piece of bronze. And so if you have like a metal or something, you can see your reflection, but you can't see your eyebrows or your eyes or your nose. Not, not really, not in detail. You can kind of see an outline. And so in the first century, that's all they would have. And what Paul is saying is that as you think about God, all you see now is just kind of the outline. It's just kind of the shadow. But one day you'll see the substance. I think of my wife and I went on a honeymoon to St. Lucia. And um, we, we were staying at this great uh, hotel and it overlooked this bay. And on the right and left sides were uh, the Piton Mountains. And I remember finding this hotel and thinking this was the greatest view ever. The hotel didn't have a wall on one side. So you just looked out, it had three walls, so left, right, and then back. And then you just look out, there's no wall there, which ended up being a little crazy actually, so I don't recommend that. But it was gorgeous to look at. And I looked at pictures probably every day of every image I could find, like from the sand and from the room I thought we were in and just looking down on the water and seeing everything. I was so excited to, um, to get there. And so we got there, we flew from Austin uh, to uh, St. Lucia, and of course they lost our bags, and it was lost for like a week, and of course I didn't pack another bag because they don't lose bags, right? And so it was like the worst, longest day ever. We run into the airport, we get there, we find a guy with our name on a thing, and it's like, I don't know where he's taking us, but we're so tired, so we get in his kind of sketchy van, and we go through all of St. Lucia up and down. We're going through small towns. He stops to try and you know, get stuff at these places, asking for directions, and I'm thinking, this, this could be it. This is it, actually. This is it. I, this is actually not the guy. A lot of fear, and finally we get to our resort, and I'm like, okay. It's like 12 a.m., and I just, all I want to do is look out, though I'm not really computing. It's nighttime yet. <laughs> But I look out and I can see just in the vast abyss, you know, I can see like a boat way out in the water. And so I see some of the ripples of the water. And I'm like, oh, it's going to be so great. <laughs> and because of the moon, I could see like some of the outline of the Piton Mountains. You know, I was like, oh, they're going to be so awesome. And I could see just there's a resort down below too. And so I could see some of the trees and some of the forests. And I remember thinking, oh, I've looked at it. I've said, I know it. I can't. I'm going to wake up. It's going to be awesome. And I woke up the next morning. And I remember just being, a, the, the sun rose, and I thought, oh, it's so much better. The pictures didn't do it justice. And last night when I just saw a small boat on the water, what now I see is a vast ocean. 
And when I saw just these little mountains, I see there are these mountains that seem to go up into the heavens and there's forests that go on forever, right? And there's trees and there's winds and there's animals and there's birds and it's beyond what I ever could have imagined it to be. And Paul says, one day the sun will rise and it'll stay risen. And in that moment you will see his face. And it'll be beyond anything you could ever have imagined. You will be with the one you love forever. And if that is our destiny, it shapes how we live and love now so that the world now can see a picture of the world that is coming, that the church exists to love people like this to life in Jesus. Because that is the future the world was made for. Guys, gals, I know it's hard, right? Some of you may be thinking right now as you're watching, you're like, I can, uh, feeling inspired, feeling good, feeling ready. You know, then you start thinking about Christmas and your family and people in your life and you're thinking, nope, I don't know. <laughs> like, right? These people, you don't know who I'm living with. You don't know my story. And I just want to say, I don't know, but I'm sure it's hard and difficult because it is. That's why we have the Holy Spirit to help us be like this. That's why we have Jesus to help us love like we should love. This agape love is gonna take our whole life, but we need to keep practicing it, keep striving for it, keep loving people because we're just supposed to love them because they're made in the image of God and they have value, not because of what they do to us or bring to us, but because they're valuable. And that's the agape love that we need. And the only place we really still see it is in the love that parents have for their kids. Really all the relationships are much more contractual. When my girls were born on January 1st, uh, two years ago, I wrote them a letter on December 31st, the night before. Man, if only I'd known. <laughs> and I just, I like to write. It's how I process a lot of the world. And um, so I wrote this letter to them. I won't read the whole thing to you because we're running out of time. But I, I wanted to read a part of this because it just shapes how I want to love them and how I want them to know that they're loved. Right, in an agape type way. And so I wrote them this December 31st, 2013. Yeah. Uh, I just said, I love you because I love you. Dear girls, I hope someday you'll be able to see my heart and how incredibly much I loved you. And why do I love you, you ask? Because you are my daughter. Not because of how smart you will be, though I know you'll be much smarter than me. Not because of how beautiful you are, though I know you will be gorgeous girls inside and out. Not because of anything you will ever achieve or do, though I know you will achieve and do far more than I could ever dream for you both. I love you first and foremost because you're mine. My daughters, my girls. Right, and nothing will ever change that. Because you see, that's how God loves us. And that's how God loves you. I pray and hope that one day you will come to know the God of your father and the God of your mother. The God who is love itself. I am convinced that the best part of my life is about to start and it's all your fault. I hardly feel ready, but you didn't ask me, either one of you. You just decided to come and start your lives, and I can't wait to see what lives you girls will live. One more thing before I go, and one I hope you will always know, I love you because I love you. I always have, and I always will. I'll see you tomorrow. The love of Jesus is the love that you and I have been looking for our whole life. 
It's a love that found us at the very bottom and loved us to the skies. It's a love that looks at us and says, I love you because I love you. I always have, I always will. That is the love that Paul wants for the church. That is the love that God wants you to know he has for you. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, because God has loved us in this way, we should love one another. That's 1 John chapter four. By the spirit of God, you and I, we can be a church that loves like that because we've been loved like that. Let me pray. Our Father, you are so patient and kind to me, to us, to all of us prodigals. And Father, you knew that we'd run away. You knew that we would not always love you. You knew that we would rebel, and you still loved us. You still have come for us. Father, I pray we would be a church that's more than a gong in the wind, but that loves. I pray we would be a church that's sacrificial, that's selfless, that's others-directed, that's loving our city to life in Jesus Christ. I pray that we would know that we were made for an eternal love. And one day the sun will rise and never set, and we will see you, and it will be beyond our wildest dreams. Oh, Father, I'm grateful that we love because you first loved us. And because of that, we live. And we'll live forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who sits at your right hand, and all God's people said, amen.